In the early 17th century, King Charles I of England, Scotland, and Ireland tried to assert control over his realms only to find that, unlike his counterparts in France, he faced an alliance of commons, clergy, and aristocracy who would not be silenced and who could not be defeated. The unlikely result of this conflict was the rise of a leader who wielded power that Charles could only have dreamed of, and the rise of a new philosophy that posited that political authority came not from divine right, but from a social contract. I'm Philip Pugh, and this is From the Bastille to Berlin. From the Bastille to Berlin is a podcast that explores the Western world in an age of ideologies. This is Episode 3, The Commonwealth. Last time, we looked at an old order that prevailed in France and to varying degrees in Europe more generally, but I very carefully avoided a major exception to this picture, one that lay right across a narrow body of water from France itself. I'm talking about the English. In the next couple of episodes, I will be talking a bit about the peculiar formation of the British Constitution and its offspring in America. I'm spending extra time here because the formation of constitutional government in the English-speaking world is crucial for understanding the roots of modern liberal ideology. So, of course, we begin where we began in France. Let's go back to the 17th century. The early 17th century was a quiet enough time for England. The Elizabethan settlements have left the church relatively stable. The demise of the peasant had contributed to the rise of the yeoman farmer. Generally, it looked as if the British Isles had, for the most part, dodged the bullet of large-scale religious warfare that had engulfed the continent. But two factors had contributed to this, both of which would also contribute to the events we're about to talk about today. On the religious front, Queen Elizabeth had achieved unity in large part by uniting the various Protestant parties against their common enemy, the Spanish, and their fifth-column allies, English Catholics. When James VI of Scotland became James I of England, his power was secured early by the discovery of the gunpowder plot. James played this for all it was worth and managed to keep the various parties playing nicely, even occasionally throwing a bone to the Puritan party with the authorized version of the Bible, hence why it's often called the King James Version. Podcast footnote. The most famous figure from the gunpowder plot, Guy Fawkes, has recently had a revival in popularity due to the success of Alan Moore's graphic novel, V for Vendetta, which features an alternate history fascist England, a conflict of ideologies, and a mysterious hero who dresses up like Guy Fawkes and blows up government buildings. I have only two comments about this. First, if you're going to wear a Guy Fawkes mask, have the decency to be a Catholic monarchist. Second, the graphic novel is much much, much better than the forgettable, ham-fisted, trope-laden author tract that is the film adaptation. Sorry, I'm sugarcoating that. End podcast footnote. But on another front, things were tense under the surface. Among the peculiarities of the medieval English state was the concept that the monarch was to, quote, live of his own. That is, from the income provided by the royal estates. 
any extra revenue for things like warfare or building projects had to be approved by the peculiarly English institution of Parliament. Now, of course, other countries had their own versions of this, councils of nobility, clergy, and commoners, but in most places, like, say, France, these were glorified advisory boards. They didn't have to approve of the monarch's expenditure or right to raise taxes, and generally were just excuses for the monarch to push his own agenda. In England, though, Parliament had accumulated full discretion over the purse. The monarch could declare war, but Parliament had to agree to pay for it. So, for example, when the Thirty Years' War broke out in 1618, King James's son-in-law, the Elector Palatinate of the Rhine, was caught up in the struggle and was offered the crown of Bohemia by the Protestant nobility. King James wanted, of course, to try and intervene and restore him to power. He was, after all, his son-in-law. But unfortunately for Elector Frederick, Parliament wanted to stay the heck out of Europe and politely suggested that King James should send thoughts and prayers. Thus, Frederick became known as the Winter King because he basically got sent packing after one winter on the throne of Bohemia and was soon safe in exile in the Dutch Republic. But his family isn't out of our story yet. Watch this space. You see, the Tudors were popular. All of them, from Henry VII to Elizabeth, had shaky support among the nobility and so made common cause with the gentry and townsmen, meaning that they could often get parliamentary support even for massive power grabs, like Henry VIII's Act of Supremacy. Elizabeth, in particular, was able to get Parliament to see things her way, and by the later years of her reign had created a cult of personality around her person, casting her reign as a golden age of light, prosperity, truth, justice, and, of course, romantic piracy. James and the Stuarts, on the other hand, were Scottish monarchs. They were used to being obeyed and had little patience for negotiation. So for James, the solution was uniquely Scottish. He pinched pennies. He stayed at peace, and he looked for new sources of revenue that Parliament couldn't complain about. His son Charles, however, was steeped in absolutist ideas and looked longingly at the sorts of reforms which Richelieu was enacting in France. But Charles's Francophilia was more a hindrance than a help in accomplishing this. For example, when Charles married Henrietta Maria, the daughter of good King Henry of France, this rankled with a parliament that had already begun to lean toward Puritanism, because the French princess was, surprise, surprise, a devout Catholic, who had no notion of converting to the Church of England. I've already mentioned how strong Protestant beliefs tended to take root among upwardly mobile townsmen, and England's towns were a major force in the lower house of Parliament. In particular, the Presbyterian faction came to dominate. These were men who believed that the Church of England should dispense with bishops, and instead utilize the representative form of church government pioneered by John Knox's Church of Scotland, and so they viewed Charles's marriage and religious inclinations with a large helping of suspicion. So you won't be surprised to hear that the antagonism between King Charles and his parliament began to grow, and by 1628, Charles had had enough. He dissolved parliament and decided that he was going to just do without them. And he did, for the next 11 years. He found alternative sources of revenue and ruthlessly exploited every loophole he could find in the tax code. And also, he kept state expenses down so he wouldn't need as much money to govern in the first place. But then, the powder keg blew up in his face. I just mentioned that the Church of Scotland was a hotbed of Presbyterianism. Charles didn't like this. 
he wanted more direct control of the church like he had in England, and he also wanted to have a common religious policy for all three of his kingdoms, England, Ireland, and Scotland. So, with the help of his Archbishop of Canterbury, William Laud, he began to try and bring the Church of Scotland into conformity with the practice of the Church of England. His father had restored the bishops already, so all Charles had to do was go a step further and have his bishops write a new prayer book. However, when he tried to introduce this new prayer book, it provoked a riot in Edinburgh that soon escalated into a full-scale rebellion. You see, the Dean of St. Giles, the largest church in Edinburgh, had ascended into the pulpit and was beginning to read the new service when a hot-tempered parishioner named Jenny Geddes decided that she had heard enough. She yelled, Dill gill ya colic, ya wame ya false thief, dar ya say mass in my log. Which, roughly translated, means, Devil give you colic in your stomach, you false thief, dare you say mass in my ear. And, feeling that it wasn't clear how she really felt, Geds threw her stool at the Dean's head. While Geds and other rioters were immediately ejected from the church, they took to the streets and started a riot. Eventually, Cooler had suggested a negotiation, and the sympathetic local authorities agreed to present the idea of withdrawing the prayer book gracefully to the king. But Charles wasn't amused. He didn't care for the idea of having religious policy dictated by stool-throwing Scotswomen, and was furious and refused. So naturally, the moderates decided to throw in with the radicals, and in 1638 they officially rebelled and signed a national covenant which said, among other things, that while they were still loyal to the king, they wanted him to acknowledge that he wasn't really the head of the church in Scotland, and oh, by the way, we're going to jettison the prayer book whether you like it or not. And, even further, we're going to go back to Presbyterianism. Let me quote a bit. Not in a Scottish accent, mind, since I'd rather not have any stools thrown at me, thank you very much. Anyway. We noblemen, barons, gentlemen, burgesses, ministers, and commons, undersubscribing, considering diverse times before, and especially at this time, the danger of the true reformed religion, of the king's honor, and of the public peace of the kingdom, by the manifold innovations and evils generally contained and particularly mentioned in our late supplications, complaints, and protestations, do hereby profess, and before God, his angels, and the world solemnly declare, that with our whole heart we agree and resolve all the days of our life constantly to adhere unto and to defend the foresaid true religion, and forbearing the practice of all innovations already introduced in the matters of the worship of God, or approbation of the corruptions of the public government of the Kirk, or civil places and power of Kirkmen, till they be tried and allowed in free assemblies and in Parliament, to labor by all means lawful to recover the purity and liberty of the gospel. Before moving on with our narrative, there are some things to point out about this. First of all, this is language that is utterly alien to our way of thinking. For one thing, people are fighting in the name of religion. But also notice something else. They don't claim to be rebelling at all. Throughout the document, the claim is that the king has been led astray, and that they are just upholding good royal government. Whatever else happens, Charles is still going to be king when it's over. It's just the people around him who have to go. Of course, Charles didn't see it that way and raised an army, which promptly got itself thoroughly trounced. And so to raise another one, he had to call the English Parliament back, and this time they were definitely not inclined to help the king out without some serious concessions. 
The king instantly remembered why he hadn't called a parliament for 11 years, and dismissed it after three months. Which left him with the same problem he had before. So he called parliament back. The first thing this parliament did was to begin investigating the king's cronies. Soon, parliamentary leaders had discovered ample evidence of royal intent to undermine their authority. They used this to rid themselves of a few of Charles' most useful flunkies and to force the king himself to the bargaining table. But they also promised to sort out those money problems. They reached an understanding with the Scots, and everything looked like it might go swimmingly after all. Until it went pear-shaped. The Presbyterian commons clashed with the Episcopalian lords, parliamentary leaders wrote protests, and there was another military crisis when the Irish rebelled. Accusations flew, the king grew impatient, and finally in January of 1642, he stormed into the House of Commons to personally arrest the five parliamentary leaders who were leading the opposition to his policies. Unfortunately for Charles, they had caught wind of what was afoot and made themselves scarce, so the king was left looking mighty foolish. He asked the Speaker of the House to tell him where they got to, and was met with the reply, May it please your majesty, I have neither eyes to see nor tongue to speak in this place, but as the house is pleased to direct me, whose servant I am here. Well, check and mate. The king was forced to return to the palace empty-handed, and within a week he had left London to raise an army to bend Parliament to his will. The English Civil War had begun. As usual, I am going to skim the details of the Civil War, except to say that it saw the rise of a brilliant commander. Oliver Cromwell, and he led a new kind of army, a professionalized force led by men who, like Cromwell, earned their ranks by sheer competence and military acumen. This army, allied with the Scots, defeated and captured Charles, and Parliament had a problem. They had won, but the king didn't seem to think that he had lost. Instead, he continued to act as if he had bargaining power, and as the majority Presbyterian faction debated amongst themselves, Charles managed to escape. Once free, Charles raised new support, and this time managed to gain support from the Scots. He signed the National Covenant, and before you could say back to square one, the Civil War was back on. Even though Charles was soon recaptured, the Scots still invaded England, and other royalists sprang back into action. But this time, Cromwell and his new model army crushed it in a matter of months rather than years, and by the end of August 1648, Charles had to go back to the bargaining table and Parliament still dithered. Meanwhile, Cromwell and the army thought it was perfectly clear what had to be done. Charles had to go. So they decided to act. On December 6, 1648, Colonel Thomas Pride entered Parliament with an armed guard and forcibly ejected over half of the members, mostly Presbyterians. This phase of the Long Parliament would be now known as the Rump Parliament. With the more radical elements in Parliament now firmly in control, they could get on with abolishing the monarchy and trying the monarch for treason. And so in January 1649, they tried and executed Charles I. And soon after, they abolished the monarchy itself. And the House of Lords, for good measure. Of course, the Scots and Irish switched sides again, and Cromwell once again had to put down the rebellions. However, when Cromwell finished suppressing dissent in the name of freedom, he found that Parliament was as self-interested as ever, and decided to take matters into his own hands. He stormed Parliament himself. Really, this is just becoming a bad habit. And he was declared Lord Protector, essentially a military dictator. For the next five years, Cromwell would rule England, Scotland, and Ireland with an absolute will that Charles could only have dreamed of. 
Once he died, though, there was a power vacuum, and the decision was made to recall the Long Parliament long enough to do two things. Invite the exiled son of Charles I to become Charles II, and to dissolve itself. The revolution had come nearly full circle. Podcast footnote. Naturally, the conflict between the Cavaliers, supporters of the monarchy, and the Roundheads, who supported Cromwell, found its way to England's colonies across the Atlantic. The name Carolina should indicate which side was favored there. While so many royalists ended up in its northern neighbor, Virginia, that it gained the nickname of the Old Dominion. Meanwhile, New England was settled by Puritans and sympathized with Cromwell, and after the Restoration, a couple of the regicides, the judges who had condemned Charles I, ended up in Connecticut, of all places. But more to the point, eventually the University of Virginia would remember this heritage by nicknaming its sports teams the Cavaliers. End podcast footnote. So why am I telling you this? Firstly, because this history plays a huge role in the development of the English Bill of Rights, as we will see next time. But the second reason has to do with a philosopher who observed all of this and developed a theory of government that horrified many people at the time, and yet became immensely influential. I am referring, of course, to Thomas Hobbes. In a couple episodes, I will talk about the beginnings of modern philosophy, but to understand Hobbes, we don't need to get into that. He wasn't particularly interested in questions like knowledge, methodology, metaphysics that his contemporaries were contemplating. Hobbes was trained as a translator of the Greek and Roman classics, particularly the classical historians. When he looked at the events of the English Civil Wars, he saw clear parallels to the Roman Republic and Greek democracy, which led him to write one of the first modern books of political philosophy, Leviathan. Leviathan lays out his theory of how the state should see itself and its function. For Hobbes, human nature is essentially self-interested, but in a state of nature, that is, before government, this means that humans compete with each other for scarce resources, and they compete violently. So what results is a war of all against all, in which existence is, in his own words, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. The only way out of this situation is to band together to create order in society. But then how do people make sure that order is enforced? The answer for Hobbes is that a covenant is made between the people as a whole and the sovereign, a state which is all-powerful and which demands absolute, unquestioning loyalty. This is the idea of a social contract. This social contract is the tacit set of rules that we agreed to when we do, well, anything in society. It provides social structure, and is, for Hobbes, the main reason why we don't go around stealing from each other all the time. The fact that such things are punished is a major feature of the social contract. But there's a catch. By giving this power to punish and bring orders to society to a sovereign, the people forfeit their right to challenge this power. As long as the sovereign maintains order, there can be no questioning of its authority. And if that order breaks down, there is just a return to the state of nature until a new sovereign arises. This kind of thinking horrified contemporaries, but not for the reasons it horrifies us. For us, the authoritarianism of Hobbes is what makes him repellent, along with his bleak view of human nature. But at the time, the really shocking thing was his assertion that the social contract is between the people and the sovereign. Despite the fact that a quarter of Leviathan deals with the proper role of a state church, Hobbes was accused of atheism and disowned by his fellow royalists, 
a fact which probably contributed to Cromwell allowing him to return to England. You see, both sides of the Civil War believed in what we would call theocracy. The government's power doesn't come from the people, but from God. Charles argued that he was answerable only to God, whereas Parliament asserted that they fought on behalf of divine law and that Charles had violated this law. Cromwell himself justified his assumption of power with an appeal to divine sanction and the accusation that Parliament was no longer doing God's work. A curious symbol that was retained under the Commonwealth was the crown. While the old English crown of St. Edward was melted down as a relic of superstition, the idea of the crown continued. In 1657, Cromwell was given a swearing-in ceremony at Westminster Abbey which had a suspicious resemblance to a coronation. He was given a sword and a scepter, and while he was not crowned, the great seal of state retained the crown and the orb as symbols of divine authority. But that's the point. State power for Cromwell was given by God. But for Hobbes, state power is itself godlike. Leviathan creates law in the moral as well as the legal sense. It doesn't derive its authority from a higher source, but is given it from the body politic as a whole. The alternative is a return to chaos and the state of nature. No political philosopher would be this frank an admirer of authoritarianism for quite a while, but two of Hobbes' ideas are going to be important for the next episode. First is the idea of this state of nature, this time before government. And the second is the social contract, this idea that government's authority derives from the people. It derives from the body politic as a whole, not from some eternal law, this eternal divine law. Speaking of next time, we'll talk then about what happened after the return of Charles II to the throne, and how the idea of constitutional government developed in England quite by accident. See you then.